0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Two Ruminations on a Homeless Brother by David Means, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 2017.
1: Rain or shine, for about a year and a half, give or take, he has slogged with the same gimp, the same loping swing of arms, the same cigarette burning between his fingers, and he's rooted in the same trash cans. The one on the corner of Midland and Franklin, or the one on the corner of River in Front. The story was chosen by Otessa Mashweg, who's the author
0: of four novels, including My Year of Rest and Relaxation, and most recently La Fona. Hi Otessa.
1: Hi, Deborah. <laughs>
0: so um, thank you for coming back. It's and my doing pleasure this again. And um, I'm wondering how you first came across this story by David Means and what made you want to talk about it.
1: I went looking for this story. I had seen some of David's work in different literary journals in The New Yorker, but hadn't really taken, taken his work on as uh, something to study. And then when I found this story— it baffled me so hard that I had to read it several times just to sort of parse out what had been happening to me Mm -hmm. in the course of the reading. (laughs) Um, And I found it just fascinating, and it's a kind of writing that feels familiar. It feels really, I mean, for lack of a better word, deep and personal the narrator, if you can call him that, I guess, the you, the narrator is also the you, mm-hmm. which is just trippy. In, in part of the story. Yeah.
0: It's a second person narrator. Yeah.
1: There's this conflation between the you and the I, mm-hmm. which is exactly just as confusing as the story is trying to be in this way that forces you to detach from linear thinking. And for me, it's sort of like a weird magic trick that gives me chills because it's so opposite the way that I want to think and feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it feels familiar and it feels like a place I want to be. Right. You don't have that reaction to every
0: second person story you read. No. 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 (laughs) So there's something
1: particular about the you in this story. Yes. I mean, I was drawn to it also because it's about a brother. And I had a brother and lost a brother. And I ruminate about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyone with a sibling, I mean, actually, this has been coming up a lot in my life, talking about how weird it is to have a sibling. There's this person that is the closest thing to you that you can get, but is not you. Mm-hmm. Um in how heartbreaking that is and how close and far away you can feel. So I think beyond just how it feels to read the story, how I'm processing the story, I'm also sort of baffled by it formally. It comes in two pieces, and I'm not quite sure if the homeless man described in the first piece Is the brother described in the second piece? Do you know? (laughs) I think we should talk about that after people
0: hear the story. Um, because there are indications in both directions, I think. Yeah. In the story. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's talk more after the story. And now here's Otessa Mashveg reading Two Ruminations on a Homeless Brother by
1: David Means. Two ruminations on a homeless brother. Sviatoslav Richter. There's this old man who walks along the fence next to the hospital, or, say, down near town, wobbling in his loose, flapping shoes, digging around in the garbage can on the corner, smoking a cigarette, clutching it between his battered fingers, or simply walking with his shoulders braced as if he knew he was some kind of fodder for speculation, because it seems to be so consistent, his homeless rooting, keeping to a pattern, moving south on Midland Avenue for a half-mile to Franklin Place, and then left on Franklin and down Franklin to River Road, along River Road to Front Street, left on front and up front back to Midland, and then, presumably, around again. By virtue of his consistency, He has edged his way into the consciousness of just about everybody who has driven more than once down Midland Avenue or Front Street or, to a lesser degree, Franklin Place. Rain or shine, for about a year and a half, give or take, he has slogged with the same gimp, the same loping swing of arms, the same cigarette burning between his fingers, and he's rooted in the same trash cans— one on the corner of Midland and Franklin or the one on the corner of River and Front. Leaning down with his underwear showing in winter, pale yellow, say, or his pants hiked up too far over his shirt in summer, he goes against the elemental facts in a disconcerting way that makes those passing him shrug and wonder briefly what his story might be before going back to their lives half caring and half not caring, subsumed in the responsibilities at hand, so to speak, or caring deeply with a flash of intense sadness and wonder, resolving to sign up to work at the shelter in town, the soup haven, or whatever it's called, or not caring one iota, And getting riled up, thinking about the ease with which a man can pass his life in what must be a pleasurable vortex of non-time that comes from following a set path, day after day, say, insane or on the edge of insanity, as a way of escaping responsibilities, dodging them for the poetic stance of being the odd homeless gent, strangely formal in the way he daintily roots, poking at the trash with a stick, his face like that of an old sea captain, say, or of a farmhand of some type, which leads some to speculate that he was once one of those shipworkers, river pilots who at times come in to land at the dock on the river to catch a cab down to the Bronx, expounding stories of bridge heights and the way the tides have to be calculated before you take a ship upriver, attesting to the way it all works— one man captaining the boat from the harbor to the river mouth, another bringing it upriver. Weather beaten, some think, while passing him on a windy day, watching the way he lists with his arms out at his sides, wing-like, the tail of his shirt fluttering behind him as he walks. The way he roots through the garbage cans in the winter snow and in the summer heat, with an admirable persistence, serves as a touchstone, fueled by the concept of mental illness afloat over the land, even, say, for the less educated observers, who just see him and think, fucking crazy old homeless bastard hanging in there, still going, still doing his thing. The phrase mental illness shrouds his body as he walks and orients him, slips him like a peg into whatever dreamy ideas of madness fill the minds of those passing and pushes away the thought that he is, in a way, say, a reflection of some part of themselves that might, someday, under the right circumstances, a financial loss leading to ruin, say, or some neurological disorder, an improper linking of nerves, or a shady haze of undetected tumor, Or some sharp trauma abrupt enough to throw off their general balance, irrevocably force them into the same circumstances, wandering day after day, sticking to the same general pattern, stopping to dig in the public trash can for discarded bottles or scraps of food or newspapers to read. Those who pass have had a sense that perhaps, at least in theory, at least as some kind of innate potential. They may, unlikely, hugely unlikely, someday find themselves in the same circumstances, although with variations, of course. They find themselves feeling something that isn't simply shame, but something deeper in the self, an obliviousness that allows for wandering in ice-cold air with your shirt wide open, a deprivation of life force or of gumption, or of will that could leave you shuffling through a limited space, say, always keeping close to the safety of shelter, if there is shelter, or to the house of older parents who, bewildered by the state of your life, will take you in and give you a bed and care for you as best they can, telling you to stay in when it's cold, building a fire, listening and waiting for you to speak with coherence, to give a sign that somehow you are going to pull out of this, and get your life back together, say, or that you were just gathering your equilibrium and finding a foothold in reality, or at least in common sense, having known you, your parents, when you were a full-blown functioning adult in the world, making deals, establishing relationships with others, cleaning your body and dressing in accordance with the climatic conditions, enjoying good days and bad days, Lingering over the beauty of the world, over, say, an amazingly graceful football play in which the receiver hooks his arm up without looking to clutch the ball in a way that seems to defy not only the nature of physics itself, but something more, the potential in the act itself, or better yet, over, say, the way a kid, like your own son or daughter, if you have one, looks up at you beaming after accomplishing some new task, such as putting a round peg into a round hole instead of a square one. Or even better, over, say, the way the pianist Sviatoslav Richter occasionally held back from playing while the audience waited and grew impatient, first making noise, mumbling and talking, anxious and expectant, while he sat on the bench and held his fingers poised to play, letting the sound of the Moscow Hall reverberate with all the coughing and tense laughter, the whispering, and then waited and waited until a deep quiet fell, a silence that anticipated the first notes and then grew even deeper, it was said, until there was nothing but the creak of the seats and the soft muted thump of shoe soles against wooden floorboards and then an even deeper, astonished silence that seemed, in all its starkness, accusatory and frank, judging the ineptitude of those who would, in a few minutes, or by that point perhaps never, listen to the beautiful music that his fingers would produce if they received the proper instruction from the brain of the virtuoso, who was temperamental and elegant and oddly dumb at the same time a man holding his fingers clawed over the keys and casting back upon the world an innate sense of that which lies between the flesh and the soul, forcing it on the audience with his unusual, albeit par for the course when it comes to creative geniuses, behavior. Oh, Rockland. It's not just that you went to visit him when he was in Rockland, now called Blaisdell Addiction Treatment Center, stopping on the way to pick up some hard candies and a bagel and a large coffee, as he requested, and that you went in and checked in with the receptionist and signed the register and ignored, as best you could, her blunt, bored stare from the other side of the window, the grill of the voice hole, mute and silent, and then went through what seemed like a set of airlock doors to the elevator standing alongside one or two other visitors who also held bags of food, and then went up to attend the obligatory class, hearing the same nurse give the same speech about freedom, focus on thought, remember where it leads, eliminate the error, explore other options, don't react, respond, organize thoughts, motivate to do better, her face slack and sweet, but also bored, everyone uncomfortable on the hard steel chairs, with the sense that through the door the patients were gathering, waiting. It's not just that you drove over there and parked and felt the sorrow of the locked ward from the outside. The building relatively new on the old hospital grounds, the other buildings, some barracks-like, others elegant and gothic, their windows boarded up with blank sheets of plywood, mildewed gray, gaping, knowing that you'd enter his building and go through the above-mentioned routine, also aware as you sat in the car for a minute that the same hospital had a mention in the Ginsberg poem again and again, I'm with you in Rockland, which made you feel part of literary history somehow, and also made you wonder if perhaps you could use this in a story. Take advantage of the fact that you were in a real situation with your real brother, who was back again in what might be the terminal treatment for his condition. It's not just that the third time you visited him, you sat in the car and rehashed the way it would happen, at least until you got in and sat with him face to face, listening to whatever he was going to say, sharing the food, leaning back, taking in the room the little kids visiting fathers, the older folks visiting young patients, the celebratory hilarity of the homecomings lifting the air with the sweet vibration. Sat in the car and rehashed the way you'd go in, face the mute receptionist, go through the airlock device, and then sit through the talk on freedom again after checking your food bag with the orderly. It's not just that the third time you went to visit on an autumnal day with the leaves brilliant in the sharp morning sunlight. You'd go through the routine and then sense again while you were talking, trying to coax him into a positive vision of what he might become. The cycle of the entire story up to that point, rolling in hoops, swinging around both of you, and you'd shrug it off and watch while your brother removed the lid of his cup, blew across the surface, and took a sip and then another sip, and then leaned his head back and swallowed, flexing his throat in the sinewy muscles of his neck, exposing his gaunt breastbone, which looked covered in tissue paper. And then, when his head came back down, met your gaze with deep brown eyes, while between you, in the quiet, unspoken silence that suddenly opened, there would be such a thick exchange of information that you'd both tear up, and clear your throats, and you'd push the bag forward and say, I brought you a bagel, like you asked, and some hard candies. And he would give you a look that was so thankful, so absurdly out of proportion to your act of kindness that you would know right there, amid the din of love talk between visitors and patients, that the tenor of his thank you would come back to haunt you later, no matter what happened." It's not just that in the car, before going up on the third visit, you'd granted yourself a bitter kind of solace, because you were not locked up there, and he was, and you were able to find words to situate yourself in life, and he didn't seem able to do so at that moment, a kind of purity of resolve in the car that sat behind your eyelids when you shut your eyes and let the sunlight purge through in a blood burst of warm red. It's not just the clean, hard facts that you understood in the car and that were so threadbare and old-hat that almost anyone could have recited them, beginning with the use of chemicals that sparked dopamine production and lodged themselves in organic compounds called receptors, and then from there took over what was originally a unique story, the Hudson River House, the artwork his stone-carved faces in the front yard, the view of the river from his back patio, his name, Frank, the minutiae of his story, and transmuted it into a clichéd tale that changed only in the terms that were used to describe it, so that those who were once known as mad, skid-row bums, stumble-bums, and drunkards, and junkies were now seen as diseased victims who might be treated. It's not just the fact that in the car, or a few minutes later, riding up in the elevator with an older couple who told you they were from the Bronx, both working people, you were aware that part of the tragedy of the situation was the loss of story inherent in the hospital walls. The sealed doors, the sign-in sheet and the folding chairs that were standard issue for this sort of place, along with the social worker who had a heavy Haitian accent and told you, when you were done with the visit, that he'd watch out for your brother in particular. Responding to your politeness, you were extra polite. His face wide, moon-like, and his eyes watery at his place behind the nurse's desk outside the meeting room. It's not just the way he told you that your brother stood out as a lively patient, that he was getting his act together, and that he would, quote, soon find his path. He likes to draw, and everyone knows he's an artist, unquote. It's not just that you went home and read Thomas Merton and reread a line you'd underlined in his book, Seeds of Contemplation, which stated in no uncertain terms that humility was the only antidote to despair, that you read it a few times and then went into a deep contemplation out on your back deck, smoking a cigar, wondering if there was a way to become humble before the preordained humiliation of a chemical addiction Wondering if the narrative thrown around your brother would look just as absurd when folks in the future found out that it had nothing at all to do with the way the compounds locked into receptors, but originated with something else that was, at that time, out on the deck, out in the world, as mysterious to you as it was to everyone else. It's not just that he went from a halfway house called Open Arms, a neat and tidy little house in the town of Haverstraw, tucked up amid the river town streets with the view of the river, a glint of blue through the trees in the summer, more stark and open in the winter, to the hospital cleanup ward, and then up to Rockland for the first time, and then back to Open Arms again for a second stay, and then back to the emergency room cleanup ward and then up to Rockland, as you'd think of it some of the time, and then out of blaze, as you began to call it later, into open arms again, and then to blaze for a third, final time, which seemed to matter so much the third time you went to visit him, sitting in the car, watching the rain come down, the smell of the bagel and the coffee in the air, ruminating over the way the names of the institutions seemed to map out with neat concision to make orderly what wasn't orderly, as if language itself were straining to show in clear terms the structure of the story that was forming around him, just as his wife's name had matched the name of his first roommate in the halfway house, and he had felt the mockery of fate itself, had said to you, Jesus, what are the chances that I'd have a roommate with a slightly feminine name and a wife with a slightly masculine name, and that somehow I'd be put in with this guy who is half my age and just going through this for the first time, with his life spread out before him, for God's sake. Well, I'm here with my life not spreading at all, because even if I stay clean, I've only got, what, a dozen years left? It's not just that it seemed on the third visit, as you signed the clipboard, that you were a signatory to some insoluble time sense, and that the duration of your visit would be a stasis of time that would forever play itself out in the revisiting of the situation from that particular point of time in relation to what happened later. And that would, in hindsight, seem marked somehow in relation to the way the hospital ward stood even as you signed in as a momentary, fleeting refuge from the wild torments of the outside world, the indelible real places, the old house on the river that had been empty since your brother's divorce, and the old art studio and the rehabilitated mill building where he had worked on his paintings, and the river itself, the shoreline down near the state park where he'd hiked with his son. That would, when he thought back on them, spark in him a need a desire to rehash his relationship with the chemicals that eased the pain they produced. It's not just that you're constantly embarrassed by or ashamed of the circularity of the story when you think of it. It's not just that no matter how hard you try to see his story in simple, tragic terms, as an Aristotelian process— You also feel yourself spinning back into the cycle that might eventually devour him, losing touch with whatever cathartic elements might lie hidden within the structure of his story as it relates to your own, partly because you are still part of the story, and it has yet to reach its terminus, and therefore the overarching arc hasn't been reached yet, at least so it seems." It's not just that you went to the state park to walk one afternoon and found his boots near the edge of the palisade, the sheer drop-off to the shore of the river. It's not just that no matter how often you sort and pick through the story alongside your parents and your sister and everyone else, you can't help but find yourself against your better nature, feeling the big sway and spin of the cosmos— the dark, eternal matter of the stars, which, however isotropic or evenly balanced seem, when you think of him, to be moving in a circular pattern that reminds you that the nurse explained, each time, during each pre-visit orientation, that part of the healing process was to step off the merry-go-round and never step back on. It's not just that so many of the organic compounds... Landlocked by their restricting bonds, all those fuzzy quantum orbitals tend toward formations that are elegantly circular. It's not just that he took his boots off and leaped from the palisade and lifted his hands and flew out over the river and then back, and that he felt himself relinquished of his condition and totally free for a few seconds with the water below him. It's not just that you imagined this as you sat in the car in the parking lot after the third, maybe the fourth, visit with the smell of damp paper bag and steaming coffee and, between those smells, the bready bagel smell. It's not just that you only imagined the boots and then felt strange about the image and remembered hiking back down the trail and along the railroad tracks to the road, stopping to stare at his house, now under new ownership, situated a quarter mile up the road from the stone quarry, the one you used in one of your stories years back, when you were first beginning to locate the sober source of your own vision. No, it's the fact that he never had a chance to fly and that you never really found those boots And that each time you visited him, he seemed to be only slightly better. It's the fact that when you left him behind, speeding down the road past the old Rockland buildings, boarded up and unused now that most of the mad and crazy are outpatients, medicated, wandering the streets and the homeless shelters, you felt a keen elation. It's the fact that once again you were joyfully facing the harsh limitations of reality, admitting that it all had to be taken and turned into a story of some kind. Otherwise, it would just be one more expression of precise discontent. And expressions of discontent, you think in the car, sitting in front of your own house now, no matter how beautiful, never solve the riddle of the world or bring the banality of sequential reality to a location of deeper grace. That
0: was Otessa Mosvig, reading Two Ruminations on a Homeless Brother by David Means. The story was published in The New Yorker in May of 2017 and was included in Means' story collection, Instructions for a Funeral, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2019. So, Atessa, um, let's go right back to what you were asking before the uh, before the story about the two parts of this story and whether they're about the same person. Mm-hmm. You know, what is what is your feeling?
1: I mean, my feeling is that this is really a story about circularity and addiction in the logic of addiction that a substance that is addictive will create the need for it, Mm -hmm. and how story or attaching a story or creating a story um, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning um, so that we don't feel lost in the void of time and space. Mm -hmm. It keeps us tethered to the earth, maybe in this moment. So, yes, the character of the homeless man at the beginning, to me it's a externalized brother. It's not literally the brother for me. And then in the second part, at Rockland, it's my brother. Or your brother. Or your brother. <laughs> <laughs> or both. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the space between those two points of view, I suppose, kind of makes me dizzy because you can go back and forth. And so what the story does is swings you around, kind of like a pendulum or on a merry-go-round. And you really need to make the effort to stop and think if you want to kind of find your footing in the story. You can read it and just be swept away, um, or you can stop back up? Mm -hmm. Where did this sentence begin? What what is he referring to? What's the it here? Yeah. Where are we? When are we? Which time is this? And rarely does a story make me back up and, you know, have to do that.
0: There's nothing like a 549-word sentence Mm. to make you have to read it more than once. Uh (laughs) And, you know, especially in that first section, the sentences get longer and longer as you go. As a writer, what's the benefit to writing in that way? Do you want to make a reader
1: stop and go back? Well, you know, a long sentence is, is a journey, and you get from A to B to C to D, and by the time you're at E, you've kind of forgotten what A is. So you can get lost You can feel at the mercy of the text in that way. Uh, You can feel a little bit overpowered. And I think what's great about employing the really long sentence in this story is it's almost as though the length of the sentence is making sure that I, as the reader, don't rest Anywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't rest on something that would make the meaning of the story less interesting, something like sentimentality. Toward the end of the story, I think he touches on that a little bit when he starts talking about, you know, how his his brother didn't ever fly. The metaphor of flight is, I think, very self-aware in its cliche and preceded by the anachronym of freedom in this clinical setting.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that freedom comes up twice and yeah. once is that list of things that the nurse says they should do when meeting with their addicted relative or friend. And at the end it comes up in, in the idea of the narrator imagining the brother jumping off a cliff and flying and feeling for a moment free, you know, the first his first freedom in a long time. And those two freedoms are so radically different. Mm -hmm. One is not free at all. And the other one is a a path to death. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should come back to that. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to this idea of whether it's the same person in the two parts, because of course, you can imagine that after these visits to Rockland, you know, the brother is back out, back on drugs. And becomes completely homeless. He's not no longer in this cycle between halfway house, rehab, and whatever comes in between. The ER, I think. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that that is the brother being seen through the eyes of other people. Mm-hmm. Or you can imagine it's just, as you say, a brother. You know, it's interesting because um, David Means said that he wrote these two pieces separately. Mm. And then realized that there was a counterpoint between them, that they could go together. With his title, he's telling us it's the same person. Mm-hmm. It's not two ruminations on homeless brothers. It's mm-hmm. a homeless brother. So I, I think he's setting it up as a question, I suppose, that we have to think about. Right. But I guess it's also sort of like, you know, the ways of looking at a blackbird. Um, you can see a homeless... Person from a distance. You can see a struggling person from a distance, and he runs through those responses people have, Mm -hmm. you know, of half caring, being kind of distracted, or of caring a lot and thinking, I got to volunteer at the soup kitchen, and, you know, or not caring at all and being angry that this person gets to live this life of leisure just going for a walk all day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not holding down a job. And then you get, you know, a response which is personal. Mm -hmm. which is one brother to another, and the the desperation and sadness of that response. And I suppose that is perhaps where the counterpoint is.
1: Mm -hmm. The car seems important in both, too. I mean, there's a difference between the homeless man who's actually on the street and then everyone else who would see him when they're driving by. And then in the second part, There's a lot of time spent thinking in the car. Mm -hmm. The only times that we're actually with the brother, I think it's when he drinks the coffee and they have this sort of choked up moment that is really beautifully described. Um, Being alone in a car is definitely a place for rumination. Mm -hmm. I mean, so is being in a rehab or a mental hospital. But it is this sort of enclosed space that moves around where you can look out and not necessarily be seen. And it's safe in that way. And in both pieces of the story, the brothers seem to be having a more sensitive experience of their own lives, maybe. What's really telling for me is when... These different responses to the homeless man are listed. The last one, like you said, is someone who is almost jealous and repulsed by the idea that someone could be so arrogant as just to spend their life living outside of the realm of responsibility, and that that person is experiencing non-time. hmm they're definitely not experiencing non-time. No, That's simply a projection <laughs> meant to alleviate the guilt of the spectator. Yeah, that We can't actually imagine a human living in that in that time, with that life. It's like when people are in prison, you can imagine all of these people doing, you know, time in solitary confinement. You are like, oh, well, something must happen so that they're not really experiencing time the way that I experience time. Because I can't tolerate the idea that someone would have to do that. And yet we're tolerating it all the time. Yeah. Um, and in that lie, the self-deception is kind of where the story is. Um, here's this. Different way of experiencing time. I mean, it's like why science fiction exists. We can't imagine things, so we imagine other things,
0: right? Or we can't face the the truth of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I suppose the man in the first part, as you said, it's a pro- he's a projection. He's what people see, but he's not really. the The only agency he has is that he's chosen his route. He goes down one street and turns on another one and turns on another one and he goes to the same garbage cans, um, but everything else about him is what people see, mm-hmm. and and people see differently. Whereas the second part, the brother, he's given very, you know, defined specific details. He's given a name. It's almost as though the narrator is is fighting the vision of the first part, because. He's saying, you know, this isn't a cliche. This is a man who was an artist. He had his house on the river. He had a wife. He had a son. He had stone-carved faces in his front yard. And that moment, to me, is such a pushback against the first section. But then it's twisted around because unless you take these specific details and make them into a story, you'll never get to a point of deeper grace or deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. So then it gets pushed into invention,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is what we were complaining about in the first part, that <laughs> people were inventing things. So I suppose that's one of the circularities.
1: Yeah. The irony, I guess, of reading a story about someone creating a story about something they can't quite otherwise hold. That's really the magic of it, I think. I mean, I I, I didn't feel... Sad or sorrowful reading this story, I felt displaced. I felt like I was not at home. I don't know this territory. I don't know this mind. Right. And you think that's a factor of the
0: second person, in that, you know, by reading it as you, you're somehow implicated. It does become you to some extent. And then you're uncomfortable <laughs> because it's not quite you.
1: True. I tend to read this you not as the you referring to me, but the you as general, like a general you. One. Yeah. One. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sense is that the narrator is choosing to use the second person as a way to distance himself from his memories and also to maybe make them less personal to him and maybe more imaginable to us. But I still feel stumped by the story. I feel confused by it. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to feel or what I want to feel. The moments in the story where I feel sure are the moments of clarity, you know, like the actual scene with the bagel you know (laughs) and there's a moment where he's ruminating about what addiction really is and he says that people in the future might know it to be not this thing of chemicals and compounds but you know something out on the deck Mm -hmm. and that is so mysterious you know And it is exactly the mystery of um, watching an addiction from the outside. It's like an unknowable force that's also, you know, sitting right next to you or could be, you know, from outer space. It's
0: it's the mystery. And it's yet another circle in the story, which I think there's a line about taking drugs to, to get relief from the pain of thinking about what you've done by taking drugs,
1: mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> how it self-perpetuates in that way. Yeah. And yet it doesn't feel like an addiction story. I mean, it doesn't fit into the category of story about a drug addict to me. You know, maybe because <laughs> Frank is never using in the story that somehow that time doesn't appear. Right. It's only these times when he's in treatment or in the hospital. And those are the only times that his brother sees
0: him mm-hmm. because the other times he's not uh, held somewhere. Yeah. He's unknowable. Yeah. Yeah. There is a story that the narrator makes up in the second part, and that's the story of the boots mm-hmm. at the edge of the cliff. And it, it's almost a high you moment, you know, where he's <laughs> yeah. like, well, actually, there were no boots. Because the first time you read that, you think, oh, God, the brother... Eventually mm-hmm. he got out and he and he killed himself, and it's such a strange moment in the story because it's a moment of relief and joy mm-hmm. in a way, and that what we've led up to in this whole spiel of it's not just that is this final paragraph where he says it's that he didn't get to fly, mm-hmm. he never got to fly, he never got, but flying in the story earlier has indicated killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I mean, it's this it's this thing where you've got to step off the merry-go-round. You know, that's yeah. what, what he's supposed to do. And that is one way of stepping out of this cycle of using to rehab, to using to rehab, to using to rehab. But is it the the chosen path? Is it, you know, what this what this man wants for his brother?
1: Well, it's certainly a cleaner story. I mean, it's a story that it's a story with an end it is it's a story with an end and actually
0: the the narrator is frustrated because he can't write the story or create the story because he's in the middle of this overarching arc Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah
1: Um, I mean what I found curious was the way that the imagery of the boots is um, so odd you know when I first read it I was like oh okay he's jumped off this cliff And then it dawned on me that you really don't need to take off your boots to do that, you know? And then how strange it would be that that was what he would imagine his brother to do. It just has this peculiarity that feels so specific to the way that you might imagine your brother to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because it isn't exactly
0: logical, yeah, except if you're flying, maybe it makes you less heavy. Oh, <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. But uh, I'm just saying that. <laughs> I'm not actually thinking that's why he does it. I mean, I, for me, those boots—what uh, they made me think of was was a pause before jumping. Mm. Right? There's a moment of kind of silence where you you yeah. haven't jumped. You're taking off your boots, and it did maybe not for logical reasons, take me back to that moment of, of Richter sitting with his hands above the piano keys and that pause, this, this idea of there being a pause before some moment of beauty or of creativity mm-hmm. and needing to come to total silence before embarking on it.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the story is kind of evoking that feeling of waiting for something or not, and that's kind of the merry-go-round. The moment of the pianist waiting to play is amazing. I mean, the words are coming just as quickly, but it's really an arresting piece of the paragraph. I mean, silence definitely makes you way more sensitive to the noise, listening so closely as to hear, you know, people's feet on the floor Mm -hmm. as they move around in their seats, the tension of that and the arrogance of the pianist to sort of manipulate. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like he's not a silence player, but he is. I mean, he's a pianist, but he's using silence on the audience just as powerfully, maybe.
0: Yeah, and he's evoking something with it. And he's making sure that people will hear when there is sound.
1: Mm -hmm. There's also something very narcissistic about that.
0: Controlling. It's controlling. It's very
1: manipulative. You're sort of torturing everybody in the audience. You're forcing them to be alone with their thoughts and expectations. Mm -hmm. I don't know, which, again, feels familiar to me. Like the way that an addict might make you feel you literally waiting for the shoe to drop. When's it going to get me, A kind of thing. Yeah. And I suppose the
0: narrator in the second part is waiting to hear the news that his brother's gone. Right. Right. It keeps not happening. He keeps turning up back again at Rockland or Blaze or Open Arms. Um, and the kind of metafictional circle is that we end with the idea that in order to make something beyond cliche of what has just been experience, he has to write the story. Mm -hmm. And that only through turning this into a story will these facts lead us to a place of um, deeper grace. Grace is an idea I think comes up in a lot of David Means stories. Do you think we get to that place? Is this the story? I mean, we arrive at the ending, which is, I'm going to have to write a story. Mm-hmm.
1: And we've just read the story. I mean, the story he's talking about is impossible, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that sense of the story, the story is an imposition, a limitation, in a way of taking what is real. He, he uses the word real, my real brother, Um taking what is real and making it into something that you can hold in your hand and not lose so easily. I mean, it's all very abstract. Although there are are moments where the narrator is really focusing on logic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the last sentence is an example of that. Um, There are also some other places where talking about the design of the brain and its synapses and chemicals, that's a very different tone than anywhere else, really. That's like a different kind of story, the story of detaching from the personal and making it into some sort of universal function or rhetoric. Even. But that's not what he does in this story. No. I mean, th- I, I'm not quite sure this story reads like a story that's meant to be read by other people.
0: Because the second person parts feel like an internal
1: monologue. Well, it's just that nothing is explained. Yeah. Though a lot is described. A lot is described.
0: We get images. Mm -hmm. We get moving images. I mean, you can see the old man and how he walks, and you can see how he pokes his stick in the garbage can, and you can see how the brother looks when he leans back and he's gaunt, and the skin on his neck or breastbone looks like paper. Mm -hmm. Um, You can smell the bagel and the coffee. So there's a lot of sensory information, I suppose. Mm -hmm.
1: And and yet it's all kind of dissociated. I relate very much to that, that sensation that he describes getting sort of lost in the sway of the cosmos, that kind of overwhelming smallness and awe in the symmetry of everything. It's this, to me a really baffling place of being being nothing and seeing everything at the same time. Sort of like being dead, I guess. It's sort of what I imagine being dead to be like. Does that make any sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, and yet what happens in the story is this seemingly endless stream of repetitions. Mm -hmm. Right. The same thing keeps happening. This man walks the same way each day. He pokes the same way in the same garbage cans. Then the narrator, the same thing happens every time he goes to Rockland. He's got to go through the same airlock. He's got to, you know, register with the same grumpy receptionist. He's got to listen to the same speech, you know, again and again and again. And I suppose that's what leaves him longing for an end, Mm right? Right. He doesn't want to keep repeating this, mm-hmm. and and maybe death is the only end he can see. Maybe he can't see an end in which the brother is cured mm-hmm. or released from this merry-go-round.
1: Yeah, no, it doesn't sound very hopeful.
0: No. However, you can get to a place of deeper grace. Right. <laughs> Look on the bright side. If you write the story, you might find some some redemption in it, and that's the other motif in the story is this sort of creation of beauty, which Richter does, which the brother did as an artist, and how that doesn't preclude the cliches of addiction or the cliches of of homelessness or any of that, but it is perhaps the counterpoint to it. Mm -hmm. I think in the Q&A about the story for The New Yorker, David Means said People like Richter, people who pin all of life and hope on the creation of art, ride a fine edge. Those who see beauty almost too intensely can easily look mad to those who are functioning within the confines of so-called normal life. So there's a sense in which this addiction or homelessness is the flip side of that creativity. And there's also a sense in which the creativity of, of writing a story, of creating a work of art, is what's going to redeem you from the grief. Perhaps we need to be able to hold those two opposing views when reading this story.
1: I think you need to hold a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not so much a story about an artist as it is a story about someone who is not really all that apparent. Sort of like when you dream of someone who has died and they kind of know that they're dead. And you're like, you're not supposed to be here. Or, I, you know, I'm not supposed to be able to see you. There's this very mysterious tone to it all that feels like it's not really about you. but It's really about him. That is personal. Mm-hmm. And that we'll never understand.
0: And we also have these two brothers really kind of in a sealed pod because— you know, he mentions parents and a sister, but there's no sense of them ever being in the room on a visit. They're more hypothetical, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, bizarre. It's interesting because I, I think a fair number of people assumed that this was, you know, autobiographical, and and I suppose David means teases that with the idea that this narrator is going to write the story. Um, but he, he said to me, you know, he takes it as proof of the power of art that people come up to him and ask him how his brother is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there's almost an assumption when you read the story that it is too personal to be fictional,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it is, you know, real, so-called.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would be convinced. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I, it leaves me with so many questions And actually, more questions for David Means, Mm -hmm. um, about David Means, really, (laughs) um, (laughs) than about the story. Like, why did he write it? You know? Why was this the thing?
0: He certainly has a preoccupation in his fiction with, with hobos, with people in halfway houses, with people who are sort of living in this condition of flux.
1: And yet, that character of the homeless person, the addict brother, is delivered so obliquely. I mean, yes, I can imagine the homeless man's arms out and this kind of glorious posture as he sails down the road, but I I can't really imagine him. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's a vague gray cast over it all. And perhaps that's part of what the narrator
0: says, you know, that it's a cliched narrative, that it's a story we all know. Mm. Addiction is not unique, not individual. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what's your What's your interpretation?
1: I mean, I think—I I don't really like assigning that much meaning to it because I don't feel like this is a story that's trying to get— something across clearly it's not really trying to get you from a to b to d it's sort of to lift you up out of a and kind of leave you sort of lost with your own thoughts waiting for the piano piece to start
0: and then take you back to a
1: yeah exactly
0: you brought up sentimentality earlier and i think you said it wasn't a sentimental story but then it has sentiment it does
1: but not in the cheesy way. Mm -hmm. Like I remember my piano teacher used to tell me, like if I played Chopin like too emotionally, you know, too dramatically, she said that I was being too sentimental. Mm -hmm. And she used this metaphor that was like, you know, you don't pour sugar on cake. Right. And there's something about the plainness of, you know, this flat environment. It doesn't need too much. Yeah. to make you feel that jarring emptiness and confusion. And yet the sentiment is there. It's just sort of pure and unnameable.
0: What do you think that the fact that every paragraph in the second part starts in the same way does? I mean, it, it makes it this kind of incantation.
1: To me, it's a way of taking something that feels very particular and obscure and unknowable and putting it into a format that is, like, innocent, like the way you would instruct a child in grade school to write a poem. You know, every line Mm -hmm. begins with
0: Mm -hmm.
1: one day, you know, (laughs) or something. I I, I mean, there's also this game that he's playing, the narrator is, with positive and the negative. Yeah. Or he's saying it's not just this, and it's not just this. But that means it is also this. Yes, in the process, he's saying this is what it is.
0: Yeah. I think there are a lot of things happening in the narrator's mind that that he has not resolved.
1: And maybe that's why he needs to turn them into a story. Right. But to answer your question from a long time ago, (laughs) I don't think this is the story. I think it's the... um, Ruminations, Mm -hmm. you know? And because they're ruminations, they don't have a very clear
0: linear movement. Yeah. And they're ruminations about ruminations. Mm -hmm. About ruminations. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you. David Means is the author of the novel Histopia and six story collections, including The Secret Goldfish, which was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, Instructions for a Funeral, and Two Nurses Smoking, which came out in 2022. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 2004. Atessa Moschweg has published the story collection Homesick for Another World and four novels, including Eileen, which won the Penn Hemingway Award for debut fiction, and Bona, which came out last year. She's been publishing in The New Yorker since 2015. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On The Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.